The scripture reading this afternoon is taken in connection with the second commandment. What does God require in the second commandment? And so we'll be reading together from Exodus 34, the verses 10 to, uh, 10 to 17, and after that, Proverbs 6, the verses 32 to 35. Exodus 34, the verses 10 to 17, and then Proverbs 6, verses 32 to 35. You'll be able to find the first reading on page 101 of your pew Bible. So here, Israel has just finished showing their fickleness at the base of Mount Sinai where they have set up an idol at the very base of the mountain where God is calling his people to worship him and his wrath broke out against them. But here we see Moses intervening just prior to our passage, and he says, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us as your inheritance. And here we see the response, the beautiful response of the Lord in our passage today. And he said, behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any other nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters and for your sons and his daughters to play the harlot with their gods. And you make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. We'll then read from Proverbs chapter 6. After God's beautiful promise to reestablish his covenant with his people, but as a reminder to them not to pursue other gods, we'll now read from Proverbs chapter 6, the verses 32 to 35. Here, too, we see a reference to jealousy, and we'll see how it compares shortly. Proverbs 6, verses 32 to 35. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away, for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense nor be appeased, though you give him many gifts. The word of God. Let's now go to the summary of God's word that we find in Lord's Day 35, the reflection on the 
second commandment, and you'll be able to find that on page 552 of your book of praise. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word so far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we've come to the second commandment, you may have had reason for pause. Coming into the second commandment here, we read as, as one of the first things that comes up, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is a phrase in the second commandment that makes some people uncomfortable. And it's something that prominent atheists have seized on because they know it makes people uncomfortable. Richard Dawkins writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving God. And he goes on and on and on in this line. Fiction, jealous and proud of it, and more. You can see how this is meant to be highly offensive language. Richard Dawkins is proud of being provoking. But this point that he makes about jealousy does hit close to home for a lot of people. God has said that he is jealous. Many people would rather ignore this idea. I've spoken with some Christians who are uncomfortable with reading Psalms. In fact, they often avoid reading from the book of Psalms because it makes God's jealousy and God's displeasure with sin known, and they'd rather not be made uncomfortable as they face those questions. And yet we do find this truth in the Bible, and we need to grapple with it. So today we'll look at this under the following theme and points. Our God is a jealous God, and we'll see, first of all, the rightness of God's jealousy, second, the covenant nature of God's jealousy, third, the exclusive nature of God's covenant jealousy, and fourth, the grace found in God's covenant jealousy. One atheist blogger reflecting on this point and expanding on what Richard Dawkins had said quoted Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. We read there, You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Jealousy, he writes. Jealousy is insecurity. It's the fear that someone you love will not love you back, a dread that they will choose someone else. It's possessive and controlling, based on an assumed right of ownership. But is that truly what jealousy is? Is that all there is to jealousy? That quote may be a reflection of some kinds of jealousy, sure. There is a jealousy that's wicked, 
And it's a jealousy that wants to control something that it has no right to have control over. It's jealousy that wants what does not belong to it. You'll see this jealousy coming up in the church babysit when one child sees another playing with a new toy that he had 30 seconds ago. It doesn't matter that his hands are full, both hands are full with a toy in each hand. He'll say, I was playing with that. And he'll wander over, clobber the other child and take that toy. You'll also see this jealousy coming up among adults in a controlling relationship. A boyfriend or girlfriend will be talking to someone of the other gender. Maybe they're laughing and having a good time, but having innocent fun. But even so, the boyfriend drives home with her in a rage. I can't believe you were flirting with that guy. Or else the girlfriend, who said you could talk to that girl? Even if the other person is apologetic, I didn't know you felt that way. The abusive and controlling behavior still comes. The silent treatment, the yelling, the stonewalling, and the quiet threat, perhaps, of physical violence. The insinuation is clear. I didn't give you permission to talk with a person of the opposite gender. You will be afraid of the consequences. Now, there are certainly lines that can be crossed. When you are robbing from your spouse to spend time with another person, that is a point of concern. But when it comes to spending time with people, these are things we have a conversation about. Controlling somebody and reacting in anger when they are, seem to be slipping outside of your control, that is a completely inappropriate kind of jealousy. If somebody seems to be getting close to a lion and makes you uncomfortable, then you can have a conversation with it. But you don't have the right to abusively dictate to the other person. If you're in a relationship, this kind of jealousy is a warning flag. Why? Because it's a jealousy that comes out of something that you don't have a right to. It's a jealousy that comes out of controlling, wanting control over something that you don't have a right to. And that's what makes the difference. Because the jealousy that God has is not a jealousy that comes out of something that he doesn't have a right to. The jealousy of God is a righteous and holy jealousy. And so we'll come to our second point, the covenant nature of God's jealousy. So what does it actually mean to have a righteous jealousy? What is a holy jealousy? Well, consider for a moment here why the man of Proverbs 6 is angered. We read there, For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. It's speaking about adultery in this passage. There has been a covenant that was made on the marriage day. Promises were exchanged. There is an exclusive partnership that is made. And so the partners have a right to be angry when that exclusive partnership is infringed on. 
when something happens that damages or breaks that bond? Is it okay for a husband to be angry in a situation of adultery? Is it wrong for him to accept no recompense? Is it wrong for him not to be suddenly okay with it, even if a stranger tries to give him gifts to appease his wrath? We would say, obviously not. The husband or the wife has every right to that kind of jealousy. This is an exclusive relationship. If we understand this to be the case for humans, then why do we challenge God on this point? Well, wait, what do you mean, you might ask? Let me explain. God created the relationship of husband and wife to mirror the relationship between him and his church, between him and his people. So where does this idea come from? Turn with me for a moment to Ephesians 5, verse 25. Ephesians 5, verse 25, page 1347. We read here, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And this is a New Testament version of something that we see coming back time and time again in the Old Testament. Specifically, the prophets, but we also see it elsewhere, as, as we saw, touched down on briefly, the, this concept touched down on briefly in our passage in Exodus as well. God sees his chosen people symbolically as his bride. The relationship between Christ and his church, between God and his people, is like that between a husband and a wife. And so the jealousy that he feels, that he feels towards his people, is like the righteous jealousy of a spouse who loves the one that they're married to. It's a glorious jealousy. It's a good jealousy. It's a covenant jealousy. It's a jealousy that protects and cherishes everything that's good within that relationship. You saw that, you saw that here in Ephesians 5. He also gave himself for her. He gave up his life for her. Jesus Christ gave up his life for his church. It's a jealousy, yes, it's a jealousy that wields a sword, keeping the forces of sin and darkness at bay. But this sword is directed to putting to death the selfishness within yourself, the selfishness that wants to compromise this relationship. It's a protective jealousy, a jealousy that is born out of unselfish love, a jealousy that treasures that relationship. That is a holy righteous and covenant jealousy that our God has towards his people. So the third thing we'll consider is the exclusive nature of God's jealousy. Reflecting on that, some people ask, well, is it okay that God is so exclusive? 
We read in our Lord's Day today, we are not to make an image of God in any other way, nor worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. And that's a hard pill to swallow if you look at it from the perspective of an outsider. A while back, somebody I know had a conversation with a woman who couldn't get past the exclusive nature of God. The fact that there are no other gods beside him. The fact that he's a jealous God. I know that there's more to God than I've been experiencing, she said, but I can't accept the Christian God. He just seems so selfish. How are we to respond to that? Well, let's look back. This is obviously somebody who is outside of the covenant and who doesn't recognize the true God yet. So within that framework, let's look back at the relationship between a man and a woman, but pull it back to what happens before the covenant promise. Say in, in say dating. If you're in that situation, you would say to that person, you don't want to be exclusive? Fine. You have the choice of being interested in any other person. But what you can't do in that situation is come to the relationship and enforce your demands on that person. You can't tell him, I don't care what you want. I'm marrying you on my terms, and I'm getting all of your money, all of your love, all of your devotion, no holds barred, but I'm still going to benefit from an open relationship on my side. We would say, that's ridiculous. If you don't want to commit to being faithful, you can't force him to take you on and then enjoy all the benefits of a one-sided faithful marriage. You have no rights over him yet. There's no covenant and he has no responsibility towards you. So if we can see that that would be ridiculous with the idea of somebody coming into a marriage covenant, then why wouldn't we be able to see that coming into God's covenant? As an outsider looking in, you're not yet in the covenant? You're not a believer and you don't want to have an exclusive relationship with God? Fine, you can try looking elsewhere. But don't expect to be able to demand God's benefits, His grace and His mercy and His protection. Oh, but that's a spiritual connection might be the response. You can't put that on the same level as a marriage relationship. Well, looking at Ephesians again. Looking at Scripture, throughout Scripture. Again, you see that the passage here describes Christ and the church in terms of husband and wife. That is to say, in terms of one flesh. One flesh to know each other intimately. Not just to be joined physically, but to be joined spiritually and emotionally, united in a special way. The physical part of that relationship comes from the overflow of that. That kind of relationship is by God's design for one woman and one man. It's exclusive. As we saw before, it was deliberately created to mirror the relationship between God and his people. We need to keep that in mind. Now it just so happens that we read in James 1 verse 17 that every good and perfect thing is from above. Anything that is good and right in this world can ultimately be traced back to God and any brokenness in this world can be traced back to us. 
So when God withdraws his grace and his patience and his mercy and love, that's when disaster sets in. All that is left is the worst of what this world has to offer. You don't want an exclusive relationship with God? Then that's your choice. But you need to recognize that every good thing in this world comes from him. You'd be able to say, look, you're free to go your own way. You can choose any other God you want to serve. But with that choice comes the loss of a relationship with God himself. And with the loss of that relationship comes the loss of anything good in this world. Because he is the one to whom it all belongs. He's the one from whom it all flows. But if you want God's benefits, you come to God as your covenant God. As we read in Exodus 34, 10 to 17, God says, I'm making a covenant with you, but this covenant is exclusive. Why? Well, because to God, the covenant that's made with him is just as intimate and meaningful as any marriage covenant is, if not more so. That is why God is a jealous God. He loves us. He doesn't want to share us any more than a married person would want to share their spouse. He's given us marriage to help us understand the goodness and the rightness of this kind of jealousy. For Israel to make a covenant with other peoples, as we read in Exodus 34 verse 12, was for the people to make a covenant with their gods as well. It was to refuse to recognize how special this covenant with God really was. It was to take lightly something that's even more meaningful to God than a marriage relationship is to us. And it grieves God even more than a broken marriage covenant would grieve us. Which brings us to our fourth point, the grace found in God's covenant jealousy. So keeping this picture in mind, keeping this picture in mind of the nature of God's covenant, where does that leave us then? As John Calvin once famously said, and as we know all too well for ourselves, our hearts are an idle factory. We keep on pumping out things that we treasure more than God. If we're not actively guarding our relationship with him, then all kinds of things can slip in. And in fact, we know that even when we do stand guard, we sometimes still see ourselves stumble. As we say time and time again in our Lord's Supper form, we do not have perfect faith. We do not serve God with such zeal as he requires. Daily, we have to contend with the weakness of our faith and with the evil desires of our flesh. So where does that leave us? If God puts his relationship with us in these terms, and we find ourselves stumbling again and again, where does that leave us? 
Well, the same fierce loyalty that drives God's jealousy also drives his mercy and his love. Here's where the amazing grace of God comes in. We see a mercy in God that's beyond even what we may find ourselves able to give to our spouses, to our siblings, to our parents, to our children, to our friends. Praise him for that. God saw the brokenness. He experienced the brokenness. But instead of walking away from it, he chose to send his son, Jesus Christ. As the greatest self-sacrifice this world has ever seen in the face of the greatest betrayal, a betrayal that each of us has contributed to, Christ came into this world and he offered himself up. And by offering himself up, he restored that covenant relationship. By his self-sacrifice, he did what we were unable to do. Because his love for his broken and his ashamed people ran even deeper than their betrayal of him. But more than that, his sacrifice was able to perfect his people. And so once again, we get the benefits of the goodness of God. As the only source of everything good in the world, we'd be hopeless if he cut that off. But because of Christ, we have this relationship restored and we have those gifts poured out on us. It's God's jealousy for his covenant relationship that made this possible. God's jealousy is the outworking of his fierce and his unfailing love for his people. A love which has gone to hell and back. A love which makes war on everything that would try to compromise the intimacy of his relationship with his people. But a love that's also tender and nurturing towards his people. A love that's taken on the pain of the brokenness and that's dealt with the immense debt that was incurred of the betrayal. And a love that heals and restores and forgives those who come before him those who come to him in repentance and faith. Our God is a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. And that's something to be incredibly thankful for. Amen.